Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Right, good morning. Really glad you're here. I'm uh, thankful that I get to follow Pastor Jeff's spoken word with a boring sermon. It's Resurrection Sunday, and of all the Sundays in the week, this is the biggest of them all in terms of what we remember, what we celebrate. Just like we mark birthdays, we mark anniversaries for a reason. I'm alive every day, I'm married every day, but I mark the day it began because that's the day that I started. It's what gave me my hope, my future. And today, that's what we're here to celebrate. And maybe it's been a really long time since you sat in a church and felt anything other than rumbling in your belly for what you're going to eat after service. My prayer all week has been that if something has fallen asleep in your soul, that it wouldn't be my words or persuasion, but the presence and power of God that would wake that sleeping thing up inside of you. The only thing you have to bring to the table is an openness that if God will touch you, don't fight him. Don't fight him. Let him. Let him stir you. About 12 years ago, and by the way, the title of the message is Resurrection Hope. You'll see why. About 12 years ago, um, I was attending the funeral of the brother of a friend. I had only met this brother who passed away uh, a couple times. But as I was walking into the funeral parlor, I was just stopped dead in my tracks by the sign because this brother happened to share not just my first and last name, but my middle initial. And uh, I had to take, you can see the quality of low light photography on smartphones back then, 2010, but. I just was on the way, and I just snapped the picture and said, that just messed me up in the biggest way because I thought to myself walking in, one day it's actually going to be me, my name on that sign. That was a really weird experience, and it made me think about this. I suspect that it is the shortness of life and the reality of death that drives most people to take any interest in religion at all. I'm not sure that if it weren't for the reality of death and the shortness of life, many of us would be interested in finding another way to live, another thing to believe in. If it weren't for the fact that in the midst of all our dying and our losing and our pain, there was a hope of something more, that this countdown clock that just keeps running no matter what, how do I make it stop? I think that's what drives us to look for an answer. Look for something. Look for hope. Since life is so short and it's so unpredictable, we're desperate to find some meaning in it. Like, what is the point? And sometimes when that question in the quiet of the night nags at us and we feel like we're wasting it all, we might have two different reactions to it. We might have despair and just, you know, say, I just don't care about anything. I'm going to numb my heart 
Mark my time and it'll all be over soon. Others just try to distract themselves from it, be in denial of it. Dial the the music up to 11. Plan something to look forward to every weekend. I know people who die inside if there's nothing special coming up in the next two weeks. They have to have something to look ahead to because if they just sit where they are, they're already dead. And so that reality of death, the shortness, unpredictability of life, drives us to need some answers, find some hope. I think that is what often sparks the first interest in religion at all. Every single major religion proposes the idea of an afterlife. No one can prove that there is life after we die. No one can disprove that there is life after we die. Not one of us has any real idea what will happen when the lights go out on this life. I cannot prove that the Bible's version is truth. But I found it after deep examination to be the most convincing, the most compelling story about that, the most meaningful answer I have ever come across. And I have studied every major claim humanity has come up with. And so I've simply chosen at the end of the day to put my faith and my hope in that truth. That's why we're all sitting here. Not one of us has any empirical proof that what we believe is for sure on the other side of death. Not one. But we have faith. And we've placed our hope in something. Because even if you dial it up to 11 and you have your best life now, it gets old so fast. And your desperation gets deeper and stronger for something more, something more. It's never enough. It's like we were made for more than this. And when this is enough, it only lasts for a second, and then it's not enough anymore. We need to put our faith in something. And so we've chosen to put our faith in the claims of Jesus. And that claim rests firmly on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection, which we celebrate today, we remember today, that is a source of all our hope as Christians. When you say you have hope, it can't just be that things will get better or whatever. The hope is this, that the God who gives any promise to us at all is real. Because he one day demonstrated power over the one thing we all hate and fear and dread but cannot prevent. That final thing, the end of it, and we hate it. Every time it touches our life, it devastates us. We've been able to do nothing about it. We're powerless. But one day, God proved that he is powerful even over that last threshold. And if it weren't for that, we might as well be sleeping in today. The hope 
that comes through the resurrection of Jesus is powerful. We put our faith in it, but it's not a blind faith. The resurrection of Jesus is the anchor of everything we believe in as Christians. And here's the thing. Jesus predicted it while he was still alive. I watch, I've been watching YouTube videos of fights, boxing matches and stuff, and I see, I especially like the ones where a cocky guy who's predicting his victory doesn't fulfill it. I just think it's funny when someone's so sure of himself, you're going down, and then he's the one going down. And there's something sweet in the justice of that. I don't know why, but Jesus, he predicted what was going to happen. No one believed it because it was stupid. It was crazy. They, they kept thinking he must be talking about something else because this normal guy who usually is so sound-minded started talking like, yeah, I'm going to die, but in three days I'll rise again. Like, figuratively, what does that mean? Like, you'll, you'll re- we'll remember you in a special way? No, he's meaning it literally. He called it before it happened. And he had many powerful enemies who took note of that prediction, hated the new movement he was starting. And if they wanted to end it, it would have been so easy to end the whole Christian movement simply by blocking that prediction from coming true. It would have been the fastest way to end it. These enemies of Jesus had all the power, all the authority, all the resources. Jesus himself was homeless. He had a group of 12 men, none of whom were particularly impressive. So here's this homeless poor man, the son of a carpenter, and 12 pretty much losers following him around, and everyone else with any power wants to stop him. And all they had to do was keep that prediction from coming true. So they put him to death. And as soon as they do it, the religious leaders have a meeting. Matthew records, After sundown, the high priests and Pharisees arranged a meeting with Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the region. They said, Sir, we just remembered that that liar announced while he was still alive, After three days I will be raised. We've got to get that tomb sealed until the third day. There's a good chance his disciples will come and steal the corpse and then go around saying, he's risen from the dead. Then we'll be worse off than before. The final deceit surpassing the first. Do you see that they weren't unaware of this situation? They knew that the easiest way to crush his movement will be to make sure that what he predicted would never come to pass. And so they worked hard to prevent his body from disappearing. With the Roman governor's permission and blessing, with his resources at their disposal, they secured the tomb with a very heavy stone and posted a contingent of guards, most likely a mixture of Roman guards and temple guards. All they needed to do to end Christianity at its start was to produce the dead body of Jesus after a couple days. But that's not what happened. And the Bible records, whether you want to believe it or not, 
that that stone was rolled away by an angel, and that Jesus, though once dead, walked out alive from that grave, and that the the guards that were posted outside saw him, saw the angel, and they were struck nearly dead with wonder and fear. Look what it records next. Meanwhile, the guards had scattered, but a few of them went into the city and told the high priests everything that had happened. They called a meeting of the religious leaders and came up with a plan. They took a large sum of money and gave it to the soldiers, bribing them to say, His disciples came in the night and stole the body while we were sleeping. When they couldn't produce a body, they produced a lie. And lies are pretty easy to believe. We want to believe the lies if it lines up with the way we understand the world. So they bribed these guards to spread the story. Here's the thing, though. These men who survived Jesus and this crowd of followers, if they had been in on the lie... They live very strange lives afterwards. Now, people will live all their lives and give up their life for a lie if they're not sure it's a lie. That's what cults are about. That's what doomsday doomsday cults are. People will die for a lie if they believe that lie is the truth. But when they are in on the secret, when they know it's a lie, when they were part of the lie, very few of them are so committed that they would actually go to their graves for it. That's the definition of stupid. And yet, all the apostles, except for one, died for their faith. And it's more than just the fact that they died, which maybe you had 11 of the stupidest, most insane men following this guy. But when you look at the nature of who they were and what happened in their lives afterwards, no scientist will believe me if I say that's a form of proof. Haven't you been around long enough to know one of the greatest, most valid sources of proof is how a person lives? If you've ever been in a relationship, a romantic relationship, haven't you ever out of your doubt and insecurity asked this question, do you love me? Am I the only one? Jeannie, do you love me? (laughs) And what's she going to say? Yeah, well, Jeannie would say, duh. (laughs) How do I know? How do I know? Is there a scientifically empirical way to prove that claim? Can I know somehow? And really, at the end of the day, the proof is simply this. Do you live as though you actually love me? Or do you just keep saying the words, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Almost always followed by, I'm sorry, and I love you, I'm sorry, I love you. Nothing in my life seems to show it, but I keep telling you I love you. The greatest proof is a human life. Because at the end of the day, we humans live our truth, like it or not. You see a person, you see the truth of them. That's the truth. They can say all that they want. I can say all that I want. But when you expose the underbelly and you see what's there, that's the truth of a person. We've had a long run of really disappointing 
revelations from Christian leaders showing that despite their pristine outside appearance, underneath was a deep, dark secret. The way a person lives is their truth. Everyone close to you knows the truth about you, not because they know your soul, your heart, because they watch your life, and it's so evident. This is my truth. People don't live or die for a total lie. And when I see these men's lives and the way they were transformed after they saw the risen Jesus, their lives are for me the most compelling truth. It was one of the reasons I started to follow Jesus was that I looked at that testament and I thought, people don't just do this. Acts 1.3 says that after Jesus rose, he stuck around for 40 days. He spent a lot of time with his closest followers. But on occasions, he spent time with large crowds. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15.6 Paul says that he once appeared to a crowd of 500 faithful believers. And he further says, and this is Paul trying very hard to demonstrate that this is not just us making stuff up. He's grounding it in historical events. He says that he gave many convincing proofs for our sake that he really had risen. From death. And we're so used to hearing about the resurrection, we don't realize how crazy that sounds. A dead man came back to life and he showed himself to people who could recognize him. This is one of those times where our faith, we really gotta, we gotta take stock of do I really stand with this? Because when we talk about being good and loving and kind to people, everyone in the world can flow with us. When we talk about going all the way across the seas to bring good news and deliverance and good, uh, good resources to people, they're okay. When we talk about marriages getting better, raising our children well, loving our neighbor, all good. But then when we say, you know, my whole belief system, my whole faith is rooted in a dead man coming back to life. You've got to really take stock of whether you believe that there is a God bigger than the law's in the experiences of this world. That's at the heart of all religion, is do you believe that there is a God who transcends all of this that we're stuck in? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if you ever want to learn more about the resurrection, that's the chapter of the scriptures to read. Boy, it's the the whole theme of 1 Corinthians 15, is resurrection. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. So is your faith. It's interesting that throughout the book of Acts, when the church was being established and the Christian movement was gaining steam, every time the gospel was proclaimed in the book of Acts, the resurrection is proclaimed far more than the cross. I think that's because everything in Christianity hinges on Jesus coming back to life. If he had not come back to life, he would be a really, really good man who had done really, really great things and made a really, really great sacrifice. He might be the best of those, but he wouldn't be the only one for whom that could be said. 
If you want to talk about great sacrifice, I think saving Private Ryan is a better story than the gospel because there's like six guys who gave up their lives to save one. If you want to talk about great lives, there are many great lives that did great things, touched many, many people. The point of the resurrection is that Jesus was not just great, he was God, and therefore the promises he made, the things he taught, the things he did, did not just come from another person, which would be a colossal waste of our time to dedicate everything in our lives to another dude. So many people in the church criticized Joan Osborne way back when she uh, came out with that song. Do you remember it? What if God were one of us, just a slob like one of us? I was so thankful for that song. People in the church were outraged. Oh, how could you even suggest such a thing? What if? What a colossal waste of time this all would be. I like people, but I don't like people enough to dedicate everything and then die for any dude, no matter how great he is. I'll admire him. I might follow his example. I might even give money to him. But I'm not going to live my whole life for just a guy. This is at the heart of why we are a church and what this whole movement is about, is that the living God of the universe lived among us as a man, and that in Jesus we find the living God in a form we can recognize. And the resurrection brings us hope because it is the proof that he conquered the powers of darkness that oppress us, He made a way forward for those of us who are far from God, exiled from Him because of sin, to live in unbroken fellowship with Him. The hope of Christ's resurrection is that He was more than just a good man, but He was God. And that the things He said can be trusted because they did not just come from another great man. But if it ended there... I think most of us would say, that's great for him, awesome. I will put that away in a vault, and I'll remember it moments before my death. I wonder if that's what a lot of people in the church have done, in fact. Not our church, of course, but all those other churches, right? Come on. I wonder if that's what many of us are doing now. That's great. But so what? Honestly. I don't say that as a rebuke. I I really want to challenge you. This way you feel about what I'm saying, what this all represents, question it. Fight for it a little. If you're feeling flat, don't take it lying down. Because the resurrection of Jesus also gives us hope for our own resurrection. What's interesting is a short time before Jesus would be crucified and rise from his own death. He received news while he was doing ministry that one of his best friends, Lazarus, was very sick and likely was going to die. Many of us have gotten that phone call. Someone we care about was about to lose someone very close to them. If you love that person, it really hurts to feel so powerless and watch this loved one, staring down the barrel of great loss. 
By the time Jesus arrived in Bethany, where Lazarus lived, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And instead of just joining the mourners, Jesus stood in front of Lazarus' grave, and he shouted to Lazarus, Come out! And everyone laughed. Lazarus walked out. It was as if he was trying to say, I'm giving you a foreshadowing of who I really am. And he pulled Martha aside before he did this, and he was having a conversation with her. Martha was one of the sisters of Lazarus. And this was a family with whom Jesus had a very special relationship. He loved this family. And he pulled Martha aside and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. It was as if Jesus is using Lazarus as a visual aid to say that what you're going to witness in a short while in me is not just for me. It is for all of you. That my resurrection will point to your resurrection. Later on, a few chapters later in John 14, when he's sitting around a table at the Last Supper with his closest friends, Jesus would simply say these words, Because I live, you also will live. That was his promise. It's a simple promise, but here's the promise of the resurrection. That just like Jesus and just like Lazarus, one day you and I and those we have lost who were in Christ will also leave behind an empty grave. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.14, We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. It's interesting that we human beings have this innate, desperate hope, wish, maybe expectation that when we die, there's something else. It's kind of a ludicrous thought, if you think about it. I don't think the other Animal Kingdom members think this way. I think most antelopes, when they're about to get eaten by that lion, they're like, it's over. That's it. There's nothing else. Should have worked out more. It's we humans alone who just desperately, we dream, but look at our fiction. Look at, look at the fiction that we love the most, the fantasy, the sci-fi, where there's hope that after a person is dead, They'll come back somehow. That loss is not permanent. I think that is a clue to something real that was deeply embedded in us as people. It's not just desperation. It's not just greediness that makes us think those thoughts. I think it is a deposit. And the writer of Ecclesiastes hints at that. That eternity has been deposited into the human heart. The resurrection is God's promise and hope that what is dead can and will come back to life. It's got great implications for our future, but it also has a powerful implication for how we live now. That what is dead or dying in us can be revived. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, a little bit later after that, a couple verses down. 
That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, listen, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. When Jesus enters the story, dead things come back to life. So I want to ask you to pause for a second and consider what in your life right now is dying or dead and needs to come back to life? I really want to give you a minute of quiet just to dwell on that question. What inside of you, and I'm not talking about around you, in you, what in you is dying or dead? and needs to come back to life. When we think about what is dead or dying in us, it's so common for us, at least it is for me, that instead of thinking about what is dying or dead in me, I just look around me and I think, what outside of me disappoints me, is going away, is failing? So often before a friendship, any relationship, a marriage, a a business, a dream, before it dies around us, something is dying or dead inside of us. And yet when we pull out our swords, we swing away never at what is really going on in here, but we swing away at all those outside things. How do I fix the problems around me? The resurrection hope is that what is dying or dead in us can rise again. And even if God chooses not to resurrect the dying things around us, this passage is a great reminder that the things inside of us don't have to die with the things outside of us. I can't prevent this church from collapsing if that's the way it'll go. I can't prevent my children from drifting away from me. I can't prevent my friends from forgetting me. I can't even guarantee that Jeannie and I, who love each other, will be there for each other to the end of our lives. Lots of things around us are lost. This is the world we live in. It's a world filled with loss and pain and death. But the promise of God is that there is a future resurrection coming, and that gives us hope even now that that thing inside of us, which is the true us, doesn't have to die with the things in this dying world around us. That's what he's after. He wants us to know that that person inside, that heart, that spirit, can live again even though you have borne unspeakable loss and pain. 
It doesn't dishonor the things we've lost, the people we've lost. What it says is, God, I'm holding on to a hope that in you no loss is forever. I won't know that until it's done, but I am holding on in faith that what is dying around me doesn't have to mean that inside of me I also have to die. Here's the thing. Most Americans, we don't, and most people around the world, I think we don't like fairy tale endings. I find that American cinema does fairy tale endings much better than the rest of the world. If you want to really be sad, watch something from Korea. They don't know what a happy ending is in Korea. But in America, you never really feel bad when the hero is in peril because you're like, the guy's going to live. It's not like, oh, the, the bomb's going to count down, he's actually going to blow up. Because in an American movie, there's always a perfect ending and all the loose t- ends are, are tied up in a nice little bow and we live happily ever after. And I know plenty of people who really resent fairy tale endings. They don't want to hear anyone talk like that. And I get why that's the case. Because that's not the way the world actually works, is it? Sometimes we stand at pulpits and present the Christian life as if it is just everything works out. It doesn't. And in this broken world, that is the truth. The things around us, this world, it's dying. It's broken. It is filled with pain and loss and death. That is the rule rather than the exception in this world. But the resurrection is a reminder that even as that happens, God is beginning to do a new thing in us. And He's telling us that though we may not like fairy tale endings, the universe has a happy ending. You have no idea how important it is for us to know this. This muck, this mire, this pain and brokenness cannot be everything. And if it is, what is the point? This gospel is good news because it tells us that the world has a happy ending. And we don't just have to wait for the return of Jesus to see it because as we are being made new and being reborn, revived and resurrected inside, as that thing inside of us doesn't die, we begin to live differently now, knowing where we're headed. We no longer have to protect ourselves, accept darkness and protect the darkness and go, why hope ever again when all of life is hard and painful and broken? It's not that. The resurrection gives us hope that it's worth it to believe and to hang on and to have faith because one day He will justify that faith. You don't have to protect yourself and numb your heart. And as we believe that truly, it will change the way we live and it will actually affect the way we touch this broken, dying world. Little by little, a dying world can begin to look like a living place if that dying thing in us comes back to life. That is the gospel. It is why we gather as a church. Yes, we like each other very much. I love this community. But why we gather is because the living God stepped into our lives and showed us once and for all that everything dying 
can come back. You believe that with all your heart. And can I challenge you, if your temptation right now is to, to shake this off and say, ah, oh, whatever. Stop defending the deadness you hate inside of you. Stop protecting the darkness that is overtaking you. What is the point of guarding it? Give in. God wants to bring life to that dying place in your heart. Stop protecting it. Let Him touch it. It's okay to be vulnerable again. It's okay to hope again. It's okay to have faith. The resurrection proves that it's worth it to believe. Let me read you the happy ending with which the Bible comes to a close. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.